0: We are glad to make all of our JCast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to JCast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org/donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Stender, a JCast Network podcast. For more information about other JCast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org To share your thoughts about this podcast or others, please visit facebook.com slash jcastnetwork As a way of talking about this Torah portion, I want to uh, acknowledge a loss that, uh, our, that, our, that the Jewish community, uh, and I think indeed the world uh, suffered this past week, uh, which is Stan Lee of Marvel Comics, and uh, some of you are familiar with the work of Stan Lee. If you're not familiar with the work of Stan Lee, my guess is that you are, you just may not realize it. Stan Lee uh, is uh, really the, the, uh, the, one of the great founding fathers of Marvel Comics, including uh, many of the heroes that are still m- most popular today, uh, Spider-Man, the Incredible Hulk, uh, and others. Uh, Spider-Man was always my favorite growing up. But one of the things that uh, Stan Lee... Uh, was most famous for in his comics, was creating characters, creating heroes that were flawed, that were imperfect. And he really popularized this idea that one doesn't need to be perfect in order to be a hero, and indeed it might be preferable if you're not. So Spider-Man, as an example, his, uh, his Flaws, his failings. He's youthful. He's immature, but that imperfection is also some of the source of his greatest strength. That he is nimble and humorful, uh, and uh, and has a sense of humility about himself, even as he is a great hero. The Hulk. His great weakness is also his greatest strength. His anger becomes his greatest strength. So. We see in Stanley's characters the fact that you don't need to be perfect in order to be a hero, and it might be preferable if you're not. That I think is a very Jewish insight, and it is encapsulated in so many ways by this week's Torah portion, which chronicles uh, the patriarch Jacob and the formation of his family. Jacob is a flawed hero. He. Uh, comes to uh, greatness through deception and trickery in last week's Torah portion, and he continues a, a life in some ways of deception and trickery, even in this week's Torah portion, even as he grows into his greatness as the patriarch of the Jewish people. And so we'll hear a little bit about the uh, travels and the travails and the drama of Jacob's life in our Torah portion this week. But there are other characters in the Torah portion as well that I think fit that mold. The one I want to think about for a moment is Rachel, is Rachel. Rachel is the beloved wife of Jacob. Uh, It is uh, Rachel for whom Jacob labors for his uncle Levon. Uh, for uh, seven years, and uh, of course uh, when he goes to marry her, uh, Levan pulls the old switcheroo and uh, has Jacob marry uh, Rachel's sister Leah instead. Uh, eventually, however, Jacob marries Rachel, and they have children together among the other children that uh, Jacob has with Leah and Leah and Rachel's maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah. After a period of about twenty years, Jacob finally gets musters the courage and the ability to leave Levon's household and he leaves not as he came, he came solitary, he came alone and he leaves with the whole rechush. he leaves with the whole uh, army of family along along with him, his wives and his children and so it's actually a uh, and what we'll read what we'll focus on this morning in our reading is the story of their leaving Lavan's house and leaving Haran. Uh, and it's not an easy thing for them to leave Levon's house and to leave Haran. Uh, most notably because Levan doesn't want them to leave. Levan wants them to stay there, wants to exert control and hold on to them. But Jacob knows, he receives a vision from God, says it's time to leave. And so Jacob has his whole family... Uh, pack their belongings, and sneak away from Levon's house, hopefully undetected. And when he does that, Rachel, the Torah portion says, takes Levon's trafim with her and hides them as they embark on their journey. Trapim are only mentioned a few different times in the Bible. It's a little bit unclear about what they are, why Rachel takes them, and what their focus, what their purpose is in our story. But let's translate Trapim the way most translations do, which are idols, or household idols. So Rachel takes Levon's, her father's, household item, idols along with her for the journey. They journey along, Levon realizes that Jacob and his family have left, pursues them, it's almost a, uh, pharaonic kind of scene where they escape in the uh, under the cover of night and then Levon realizes that they had left and chases after them finally catches up to them uh, in uh, the, uh, the the uh, hills of uh, uh, in, in the hills of the wilderness on their way from Mesopotamia to Canaan uh, and Levan gives Jacob a tongue lashing for having escaped without them. He says, if you'd have told me you were leaving, we would have sent you off with drums and lyre and we would have had celebrations, etc. We know at this point that Levan is a deceiver and that's probably not uh, what he would have done had he told them to leave. But he says, he focuses on not the fact that they had left, but the fact that when he realized that they had left, that his trapim were missing, his idols were missing. And so Jacob has Levon search the entire family, all their tents for these idols, and Levon doesn't find them. Rachel, it turns out, has hidden them in her saddlebag in uh, in the camel. She doesn't get off the camel where she's sitting on top of them, uh, and apologizes to her father saying, I can't get off the camera right now because I'm having uh, a, the period of women right now. And so I can't get off to, uh, to have you search. Please forgive me. So Levon doesn't find the idols. But Jacob had said that if you find the idols in anybody's possession, I will surely kill that person. That person will be liable for death. And shortly in the next week's Torah portion, Shortly chronologically after this, Rachel does, in fact, die. Dies during childbirth of her second son, Benjamin. And so many commentators connect her ultimate death to the fact that she was actually the one that stole these idols, and Jacob had made that promise that whoever stole the idols would be liable to death. But here's the question that most of the commentators wrestle with. Why was it that Rachel stole these idols? There are a few different possibilities that are raised out there. Rashi, the 11th century French commentator, says that Rachel stole the idols because she was trying to divorce her father from idolatry. And so she took the idols uh, away from him, kind of like Abraham smashed all the idols in his father's shop, to say you shouldn't worship idols anymore. Now that's not a very good solution, I don't think, because if she wanted him to stop worshiping idols, she probably would have needed to tell him, hey, I'm taking these away from you because you shouldn't worship idols anymore. He could just go to the store and buy more idols. Having the idols being taken away doesn't seem like a really effective solution uh, to that problem. And the text doesn't really give any indication that that's what Rachel's intention is. Nachmanides, the, uh, uh, the 13th century Spanish commentator, says that Trapim in the ancient world had, a, uh, had an oracular quality. So people would use them to divine the future. And Rachel wanted to take them so that Levon wouldn't know where they went. Because if he had the Trapim, if he had the idols in his home, he might have been able to divine where they were, chase them, and come after them. Now, that also doesn't seem like a very effective solution answer to the problem because, after all, Levant does catch up with them and does find them and uh, does try to stop them from leaving. So I'm not sure if I agree with Nachmanides on this. I think that the better solution, the third solution, is that Trapim were a very, very common part of households in the ancient world. Sometimes they were worshipped as idols and sometimes they were just prized family possessions. And each family would have their own trapim that were unique to their family. Uh, it was like if your, if your mother had a, a, a collection of collectible plates, or what are those figurines that people like? Hummel figurines, right? Uh, this the things that are like unique to your family, that if you were to take them away from your house, it would be an indelible possession of your family that you would have with you, a, a, a priceless heirloom that you could hold alongside you. And so this interpretation, which is a more modern interpretation that that acknowledges and affirms that these statues were prevalent and present throughout the ancient Near East, including in the homes of Israelites. We see them in the stories of King David. King David had them in his house as well. Sometimes they were worshipped as idols. Sometimes they were just priceless family heirlooms. And this argument says that Rachel took them because she knew that leaving her father's household was permanent. If you follow along in the narrative, you'll see that it is entirely Jacob's intention to never see Levon again. For good reason. Levon is not so kind to Jacob, and there are aspects of being in his possession, of being in his household, that have been dangerous and damaging and threatening to Jacob. And... Jacob's time there was in part due to his cunning and survival abilities. It was Jacob's intention to totally leave Levon forever. To make sure that he severed all ties and connections with Levon. Now, his wives and children probably knew that that was the right decision. They didn't put up a protest when he said it was time to leave. But Rachel even without protesting, takes these trapim with her, takes these idols along with her. Why? Because she couldn't bear the thought of fully leaving behind the household, the family, the life she once knew. It's totally understandable. Many of us can relate to that feeling of wanting to hold on to an aspect of our past when we're moving into an unknown future. But the text is very sly because it frames this aspect of her past specifically as trapim, specifically as idols. In part, I think, to tell us that when we are moving into our future, when we're taking those next steps that are required of us to become, to grow into the people we are called to be, and we yearn to hold on to aspects of our past because they're comfortable, because they anchor us, because they give us connection, the text is warning us, beware. Those aspects of our past can be idols, can be distractions, can hold us back from becoming who we are called to be. Remember, earlier in the book of Genesis, when Lot and his family are escaping the city of Sodom, as it's being destroyed, God gives them one instruction. Don't look back. Keep going, don't look back. And of course, famously in that story, Lot's wife, whose name is Lot's wife, (laughs) looks back and becomes a pillar of salt, stuck, frozen in time. That's, I think, what the text is saying about Rachel here. That's what the text is warning us. Don't be stuck. Don't hold on to your past so tightly that it becomes an idol disabling you from pursuing the possibilities of your future. It's a warning for Rachel. It's encompassed in this narrative of Jacob. Jacob leaves his homeland. And gets reassurances from God. I will be with you when you go. And I'll be with you when you come back. At the end of the narrative. Jacob is going back to the land of Israel. Encounters God again. God says don't worry. You're going to toward the, toward the unknown. I will remain with you. We recited in Adon Alam At the beginning of service. Adonai li lo ira. God the breath of all life. The God of possibility. The God of Past, present, and future will be with you as your journey. You you do not need to clutch on to the idols of the past. And here also, some of the great heroes of our tradition in the vein of Stan Lee's heroes are instructive. He talks of the wise men of Chelm, whose imperfection is also in some sense the greatest source of their strength. He tells a story of how one of the things that brought the people of Chelm the greatest joy was the moonlight during the darkness of night. And they would become depressed when when it was a new moon or when cloud covered the moon and they couldn't see the moon anymore. And so one person said that one time I was eating a bowl of soup and I saw the moon's light in my soup. And so it must be that if we were to build the world's biggest bowl and fill it with soup, it would, we would be able to capture the moon in the bowl of soup. So that's what they did. They went into the town square. They constructed the world's biggest bowl. When it was completed, everybody in the town came with jars and pots and and ladles full of soup. They filled this bowl of soup, and wouldn't you know, the moon was shining bright. A full moon that night reflected in this giant bowl of soup. They say, ah, we've got the moon. And they put a cover on the bowl of soup to indicate that they had captured the moon. And just at that moment, cloud came and covered the moon And so they assumed that they had actually accomplished it. They had actually captured the moon. The next day, they opened up the bowl of soup, and the moon was gone. And a great pallor fell over the entire town. Who stole the moon? And they set out an investigation. They appointed a special prosecutor to find out who stole the moon. They went to everybody in the town. They didn't ask the rabbi, because the rabbi, of course, is incredibly trustworthy. No one would ever dream of accusing the rabbi of stealing the moon. But they went to everybody in the town. And and everybody had an alibi. So finally, the only person that's left is the rabbi. And they go to the rabbi and say, Rabbi do you know who stole the moon? And the rabbi said, yeah, I stole the moon. They couldn't believe it. said, rabbi, why? How could you? How could you steal the moon? And the rabbi said, because some things are valuable and joyous and good only for a period of time. And after their period has passed, it's important to be able to let them go. People in town said, oh, I get it, like a pair of shoes, like a shirt. Rabbi said, yes, but also sometimes intangible things, too, like a hug or like love. We can't always hold on to those things. We can just embrace them. And so he said, that's the same with the moon. When it's shining, we can rejoice in it, but when it's not, we have to be able to let it go. And so they said, well, what will we do when the moon is not shining? How will we find joy? And the rabbi said, well, we'll have each other to provide us with comfort and joy. And someone shouted out, and soup! (laughs) The rabbi said, yeah, And and soup too, because... Soup may not be the cure for everything that ails us, but, it's but it helps. <laughs> and being able to share soup, more importantly, may not be the cure for everything it, that ails us. But that connection, that sharing, that embrace, it helps. What this story of Rachel reminds us is that we can't capture the moon. We harm ourselves by chasing the nostalgia of the past and being unable to let it go. We disable ourselves from moving into the greatness to which we're called the future that's promised to us. And so as we read our Torah portion of Jacob's journeys alongside Rachel, we see the tragedy of Rachel being able to being desiring to cling on to a past that she cannot hold on to and that in the end destroys her. We are invited to move forward to our future and let go of the idols that hold us back.